Hello and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 110, Pope Marinus I. Marinus. Yeah, Marinus. So let's talk about this name for a moment, because it's gonna mess things up a little bit. In various historical sources throughout the years, including Bartolomeo Platina's Lives of the Pope, Marinus was referred to as Martinus, which means that he has often been mistakenly recorded as Pope Martin II. Interesting. We have a a Cletus-Anacletus issue. Sort of, yes. And Platina even says, quote, Some, perhaps deceived by the likeness of the names, called him Marinus. But it turns out that you are the deceived Bartolomeo. You are the one who is wrong, but you are calling the right people wrong. So this has caused an issue because we'll actually have another Marinus, who is then recorded as Pope Martin III. And so when we actually get back to a pope actually called Martinus, he becomes Pope Martin IV. But this pope that we're talking about today is definitely Marinus, not Martinus. And Pope Marinus II is definitely Marinus, not Martinus. So there is no actual Pope Martin II or Pope Martin III. As if the church didn't already have enough naming confusion. So we're going to go from Martin 1 to 4 and have Marinus 1 and 2 in the middle. Now, Marinus was born somewhere in the early 830s in Galese, which is in Viterbo, about an hour outside of Rome today. And his father was a priest called Palumbo. Huh. So Palumbo was a priest, and he must have joined the priesthood when Marinus was fairly young, because he followed in his father's footsteps and joined the church in Rome by the age of 12. Very young to join the church. What happened? Well, he just followed his father's footsteps. His father was a priest, and it was probably like, okay, son, I'm doing this great thing. You should come do this great thing with me. And so he did. And so the 12-year-old entered the church. Weird. And within a few years, he was made a subdeacon by Pope Leo IV. At like 15, he can't even drive. (laughs) Well, he doesn't need to drive to be a subdeacon. He's just a subdeacon. It's like the most basic of roles. And he gets to do that at the Church of Santa Maria Maggiore. And then he becomes a deacon by Pope Nicholas. And the reason we actually know this, because this isn't detail we've had recently, is because he states it himself at the Fourth Council of Constantinople. So we have a quote from Pope Marinus saying, I was subdeacon of the Roman Church at that time, consecrated by the saintly Roman Pope Leo, and had administered in the Roman Church from the age of 12. And when these men came to Rome with Ersbeer, I was ministering in the Church of Mary, Blessed Mother of God, called Praesepis. So we actually know from his own words. Because usually we don't have that, unless they were no. letters or something. We usually get like a half mention in the Liber Pontificalis, which isn't even around anymore. So it's a pretty nice change of pace. And Marinus must have made a stellar impression on the various popes he served under, because from that point on, 
Marinus was chosen repeatedly to act as the Pope's assistant and legate for important issues. So first, in 860, he assisted Pope Nicholas in Rome in receiving the Byzantine envoys of Photius, who were seeking for the Pope to legitimize Photius's consecration, which is what Marinus is beginning to describe in the quote that we just used above. He was then sent to Constantinople to investigate the nature of Photius's consecration. So he was part of that delegation that was unable to make it to Constantinople due to being stopped and delayed for 40 days in the territory of the Bulgars. Because remember, fairly contentious area. Bulgar King Boris is flitting over what kind of Christian he wants to be. So he just kind of detains the Pope's delegates for a while to decide. And this means, importantly, that though he was going to investigate Photius on behalf of the Pope, he was not with the legates that were then bribed and pressured into confirming Photius as patriarch in Constantinople when they were only supposed to be reporting back to the Pope. So he's one of the ones that didn't screw up royally. He is then sent back to Constantinople in 869 by Pope Hadrian II to serve as a legate for the first Fourth Council of Constantinople, which then was the one who condemned and deposed Photius for not being a canonical patriarch. He was then sent back to Constantinople a third time, representing Pope John VIII, to confirm that Photius had met the Pope's conditions for recognizing him as patriarch. And we mentioned this in the last episode, because when Marinus arrived in Constantinople, he took his duties very seriously and ended up imprisoned. And jail. Yeah. How old is he? He's like 18? He, yeah, he's probably in his 20s or 30s by this point, because we're now, we're now on the third Pope that he served, and Nicholas was Pope for at least seven years. Is he 12 years. years old still? Could you imagine they're throwing the 12-year-old who's taking his duties seriously in <laughs> jail? That would just be rude. <laughs> so he gets imprisoned for a period of time before he's released and sent back to Rome. And this is mentioned in a later letter from Pope Stephen V to Emperor Basil II. Quote, Because he felt and thought as our predecessor and teacher, the very holy Pope Nicholas felt and thought, whose decision he wished to carry out to the letter, the godly Marinus fell into your utter disfavor because he refused, as reported, to admit those who thought differently and to declare null and void what has been decided at a synod in the presence of your majesty, Marinus was imprisoned for 30 days. So, he's had quite a time. He's been to Constantinople three times as a papal legate already. And it's not always been very smooth. He's been detained. He's been imprisoned. Then, in 882, he was sent as legate to Naples as part of John's efforts to make an alliance against the Muslims and influence the southern Italian princes to break any alliance that they currently had with them. So, remember when he created that league and he tried to force them to, to just shut all the Muslims out? Marinus is part of this. He goes to Athanasius of Naples and warned him to break his Saracen alliance, and may have even been one of the ones to bribe Athanasius to do so. What's he have to bribe him with? Money. Money from the Pope. Because the Pope was, was fully prepared. Pope John was fully prepared to 
to bribe the southern petty princes to stop using the Muslims in their fight against one another if they would just cooperate. So remember, he's like, hey, I will ease this transition for you with a little bit of money. So that's what's happening. So when Marinus returned home, he was promoted and consecrated as the Bishop of Cairo, which is modern-day Cervateri, and also made treasurer for the church. So thus far, he's done quite well. Right? He's great-legate, successful, strong-willed, promoted, and then when Pope John VIII was murdered and an election was hastily organized to replace him, so hastily that some sources, by the way, suggest that it may have occurred on the same day that John died. Hey, we just bashed in this Pope's head. We should have an election the same day. Yeah, you know, don't do that. Yeah, it's a little too hasty. I thought there was a rule. There is a rule. There is a rule that it is illegal to discuss the succession of a pope while a pope is still alive. So they waited about 30 seconds after, potentially. (laughs) Which, by the way, also lends further weight to the theory that Pope John was actually murdered for more reasons than just a relative waiting to inherit some land. Also, unfortunately, leads to some speculation that maybe Marinus was involved with what happened to Pope (gasps) John. No. There's no actual evidence of this. Right. But, you know, it's very hasty and suddenly he's being elected as the new pope. And not only is he just being very hastily elected as the new pope, he is being hastily elected unanimously as the next pope. And then very quickly, hastily consecrated without waiting for the imperial legates to acquire confirmation from the emperor. So this all happens very, very fast. Suddenly, Pope John is murdered. Suddenly, he is Pope. Suddenly, he is consecrated. They've done none of the normal steps. And as a result, there is a huge oversight. And Marinus's election posed a problem and set a precedent that hadn't happened thus far in the history of papal elections. You want to guess what the problem was? Oh, God. Um... <laughs> I don't know that he may have murdered him. No, he's well, a murder suspect. <laughs> I mean, if murder suspects were not eligible to be in papal elections, we would definitely have to discount some later popes. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, he'd just been promoted. He was already a bishop. He's the only, the very first bishop to be elected pope because. Bishops hadn't been elected to become Pope because they were already bishops. And as oh, we've said... You can't have two places. Correct. Time and time again, a bishop once consecrated to a diocese cannot move to another diocese. We've been talking about this for a long time, but since Marinus sets all the precedent... together. Yeah, And since he sets the precedent of being the first bishop ever to be elected pope, we're going to talk about where this rule came from. So this goes all the way back to the 15th canon of the Council of Nicaea. All the way back, first ecumenical council, the 15th canon states, On account of the great disturbance and discords that occur, it is decreed that the custom prevailing in certain places contrary to the canon must wholly be done away so that neither bishop, 
presbyter nor deacon shall pass from city to city. And if anyone, after this decree of the holy and great synod, shall attempt any such thing or continue in any such course, his proceedings shall be utterly void and he shall be restored to the church for which he was ordained bishop or presbyter. You cannot have another city, but this is so that they don't become the bishop of a small diocese and then suddenly get ambitions to be an archbishop somewhere else. To murder their way to the top or something? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You cannot move cities. And nowadays, you and I listening to this will go, well, Rome is different, right? Because we've, we've seen bishops pretty much exclusively being elected to be pope from this yeah, point. Yeah, right? they're only bishops. They're, exactly. Well, I mean, they're, they're extra tall bishops with extra red hats. Exactly. So for us, Rome is different. And we would go, well, Rome is different. But at the time that this is happening, Rome is not different. And this has never happened. So this is the first moment where this debate over whether Rome was different comes into play. And it also meant that Marinus's election was not without its challenges and detractors across the church who felt that the Nicene Canon should not or could not be overlooked, including the Byzantine emperor who suggested that Marinus's consecration was uncanonical and therefore an illegitimate pope. What's more, historian Francis Dvornik suggests that perhaps this is a possible reason why John VIII had made Marinus a bishop in the first place. Because as we've seen, he's been a forceful and prominent figure in papal affairs at this point. I mean, he seems like he's doing a really good job. Yeah, and so maybe Pope John saw this and felt threatened by him and wanted to ruin his chances to be the next pope. You might remember that one of the sources we brought up in John's episode called him vengeful and jealous and inconstant. Oh, that's right. I just thought that that was because he was a cranky pirate. Well, and it could be. We don't know. This is entirely speculation. However, this is a tactic that we're going to see plenty of very soon. This does become something that the popes will do. Hey, that guy is taking a run at my papal throne. I'm going to make him a bishop so he can't be pope. That's something that happens a lot. And that that sort of leads to the cadaver synod. So (laughs) we're getting there. However, in this case with Marinus, the clergy of Rome were not about to change their minds. And since Marinus was consecrated so quickly... He's already acting as Pope before anybody can make this challenge, right? No one is mounting a challenge with enough grounds for the clergy to reconsider undoing what they have already done. They're like, nope, it's done. We can't deal with it. Maybe we can make future legislation so it doesn't happen again. But Marinus is Pope. So this goes over surprisingly smoothly despite being a major change and a major problem in regards to how things are done. And so this sets a whole new precedent for bishops being considered for Pope. But to be clear, this is not a clean and direct precedent and definitely will be questioned time and time again 
and it certainly won't be as easy for future bishops in their elections as it is for Pope Marinus. In the words of historian Frederick J. Baumgartner in his book, Behind Locked Doors, A History of Papal Elections. Baumgartner? Baumgartner. So his book, Behind Locked Doors, A History of Papal Elections, he says, quote, The violation had no consequences for Marinus, but it did for Pope Formosus, also a bishop, when he was elected in 891. Like I said briefly before, we know how that's going to play out. So, based on how he was so quickly elected, we know that Marinus was aware of this ongoing factionalization of the nobility of Rome, particularly in reference to what we talked about last week with Formosus and his friends and their excommunication by the now murdered Pope John. There's no way he didn't know about any of this. He is very, very aware. And so, one of Marinus's first acts as Pope, in an attempt to reduce the conflict and probably to reduce the threat to his person, was to undo Formosus's excommunication, restore him to his bishopric of Porto, and allow him to return to Rome. So he just undoes everything that Pope John did with, with that troublesome bishop. So how we judge him on this is certainly going to be up for interpretation because it could be considered a prudent move that kept the peace or he could have wanted to bring Formosus back to treat with the Bulgars again. Because they love him. Yeah. Or it could be the Pope bowing to the pressures of the nobles. Not so good, which is absolutely going to become a pattern. So unfortunately, there really aren't any commentaries on this point as far as Marinus's ambitions or intentions. And we don't know whether or not Formosus and Marinus had any sort of relationship, friendship, amicably or not at this point. Or if Formosus maintained his friendship with his excommunicated friends who do not get restored at but he somehow gets off scot-free from all of that nonsense that happened. But after undoing one of Pope John's major acts, Marinus then goes and confirms another, which was to continue the condemnation of Photius, which is not a terrible surprise since he had been imprisoned when he was a legate there on behalf of Photius. Hey, this guy is responsible for me ending up in prison. Maybe I don't want to undo his condemnation. Historian Francis Dvornik casts some aspersion on this idea since there wasn't an overt condemnation of Photius at this time, but there's also no evidence that he tried to reconcile with him either. There's unfortunately not a whole lot else to say here, as for the duration that Marinus was Pope, Photius remained as Patriarch, and his deposition by Emperor Leo IV hadn't happened yet. He's acknowledging that... Photius is condemned in the West, but nothing really happens with that. Marinus also followed John's policy in doing everything that he could in order to gain support from the Western Emperor, Charles the Fat, to defend the Papal States. The Pope and the Emperor did at least have a meeting at the Monastery of Nonantula in 883 to discuss the ongoing Saracen threat, 
But unfortunately, yet again, the emperor was going to be of no practical use to the Pope. And even worse, the emperor was currently distracted by his fighting Italian dukes, like Guido of Tuscany and the rest of the others. And he decided that the best way to handle their feuds was to deprive them of their territory, which then caused his nobles to band together to rebel and seize back their lands and then some of the others. And so the whole thing is just terribly unstable and the emperor is not going to be able to help the Pope at all. He's going to make no effort to support the Pope against the Saracens at all. So that also goes nowhere. But one area where it seems Marinus actually made an impact or had an active role to play was with our Rex Factor OG, King Alfred the Great. So apparently, unlike Pope John, who had to contend with complaints that Alfred wasn't kingly enough, Pope Marinus had a great respect for the King Alfred, who at this time was well on his way to establishing the legacy that would make him great. Wasn't uh, wasn't one of our other popes hanging out with him when he was a small boy? Yes, yes, he came to see Pope Leo the Fourth when in... he looked like one of those small murdered British boys. <laughs> yeah, when he was a tiny babe. So he's now shown up at our podcast thrice. Uh, <laughs> but at least this time, it's it's for good reason. It's not that he's just a tiny babe, and it's not the bishops complaining that he's not being kingly enough. This is. Him doing his thing on the way to being a great king and having a great relationship with the Pope. So we have this fostering of the relationship between the papacy and the pious king. And so as a result of this, Pope Marinus allegedly sent King Alfred a gift. But not just any gift. It was a piece of the true cross. The true cross? The true cross. No, it's been like 800 years. Yeah, I know. But as we know, these are relics that definitely come out through the church, especially in the medieval and early modern period. I understand, but also I have seen someone not like prime a deck and what happens? Well, Pope Marinus had had the true piece of the true cross, Uh, according to these sources. What sort of amazing primer did he put on it? Um, divine primer? Come on. Divine primer. (laughs) Diviner. Quote, No small portion of the holy and venerable cross on which our Lord Jesus Christ was suspended for the general salvation of mankind. That is a hell of a gift, pardon the pun. It's so weird. Fine. Yeah, it's the true cross. So our our Popey man has given it to Rex Factor OG King Alfred the Great. So we are connected by the true cross. Here, have this piece of wood I found. Yes, this this divine primer special wood. Special wood. I bet there seems to be a, a unwanted dick joke in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, there are dick jokes everywhere when it comes to special wood, isn't there? So this is a pretty big one. He also exempted the Anglo-Saxons in Rome living in the Scola Angelorum, which was the Anglo-Saxon district that had been established in the papacy of Pope Gregory II, from paying taxes to the church upon Alfred's request. So things are looking quite nice for them. 
Also, in terms of his relationship with the wider church, Pope Marinus appointed a bishop called Folk, now known as Folk the Venerable, to be Archbishop of Reims and sent him the pallium. Folk was in regular correspondence with Alfred, and this move might have been also on Alfred's request. And we're going to come back to Folk because he plays a relatively large role with the Carolingians, as we'll see quite soon. Now, Marinus also attempted to uphold John's defenses against the Muslims, but significantly less vigorously, because he is not a pirate captain. Ah, uh, yes. John had done such a good job, right? So, so Marinus has a lot to live up to. And in 883, just at the beginning of his papacy, the Muslims retaliated against John's harsh and hostile policies that had broken up all of their alliances by sacking the monastery at Monte Cassino and burning it down, causing so much destruction that the monastery had to be abandoned and wouldn't be rebuilt for almost 70 years in 949. Now, remember, this was the monastery established by the St. Benedict of Nursia, you know, the whole rule of St. Benedict, all of our Benedictine monks. So this is a massive symbolic blow. So it's not necessarily a mark against Marinus, but it is definitely a defining moment of the age. Pope John VIII was an excellent, excellent pirate captain, and then they retaliate and burn Monte Cassino to the ground. I mean, if you're going to burn something, you might as well do it on land, I guess. Yeah, and hit, you know, they, they've, they've had St. Peter's, they've had St. Paul's, now they're going for Monte Cassino. It's not, it's not a good scorecard. <laughs> but unfortunately, Pope Marinus wouldn't have much time to respond, because he died on May 15th of 884 of natural causes. At the age of 20. <laughs> I mean, it's been a long time since. We've covered over, like, 20 years just of of leg at work here, so... No, it's been, like, three years. (laughs) He's still a child. Younger than Pope Nicholas when he died. At the age of three. (laughs) Look, I am currently writing a forever pope who is an actual child pope, so let me tell you, when we get to those child popes, uh, things look a little different. Fair, fair. (laughs) I know there's children popes. There's a debate over which pope was the youngest pope in history, and they also share something else that they compete for, like the top category in, but spoilers. So, So, Pope Marinus was buried in St. Peter's, and his tomb was destroyed in the renovations for new St. Peter's. However, his epitaph was preserved in full and very good condition. You can still see it. Ah, an epitaph that wasn't actually destroyed. Yeah, they didn't take a sledgehammer to it. (laughs) Who would have thought that it would be a good idea to preserve something of these early popes? But hey, so his epitaph reads, How greatly he pleased the Lord by his great skill, by his modest spirit. Apostolic bishop and glory of the world, here he decided that his remains should be enclosed beneath this tomb, hoping that the earth would return those same remains to him, who shone before all like the burning stars of the sky, that are esteemed by honorable nations and tribes. Full of holy doctrines and brilliant teaching, he sowed the holy seed throughout the lands, rejoicing. 
for overcoming the Greeks in Eastern lands, driving away schisms, he returned the church to unity. But whosoever comes to this, all of Peter the Prince, humbly say, may he reign as our heavenly protection. So that is Pope Marinus. So now it's time to rate him. Should be an interesting one since, you know, it's only been three years and he's still a child. A little baby. <laughs> well, let's see how this baby does. Papatum infallium. So for better or for worse, his pontificate sets a new and controversial precedent of bishops being elected to be pope, despite the Nicene Canon prohibiting any cleric from transferring sees. So that is a big one. Whether we think that is good or bad, it's still a big point in terms of how things progress for the Pope. Also, we have to consider uh, he restores Formosus, which may have brought some unity and some stability, but also seems to be relatively weak in terms of the might of the church, right? He's undoing an excommunication on this man. And Formosus was definitely at least somewhat involved in the acts that got his friends excommunicated. So there's that. And more on the good side of things, although it seems relatively neutral, he maintained the condemnation of Photius as patriarch, just as Nicholas had. Ah, oh, God, okay. Um, I don't know. So he he does the the bishop thing is probably going to bite some people in the butt but oh, yeah. it's how we do things now so let's give <laughs> mm-hmm. him like two for that okay for moses had to be reinstated or we wouldn't get the spoilers <laughs> so you're gonna give him credit for the future drama <laughs> as a mm-hmm. good thing maybe i mean i'm here for it <laughs> <laughs> maybe like one point for that Okay. And then one point for the rest of it. Let's give him a, that's a four from me, dog. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, yeah, um, four from you. Okay, so you've given him a four. I am going to say that he maintains the condemnation of Photius. That is worth something. I am not going to give him any points. For bringing Formosus back, because it would have been better for everyone except for drama if Formosus had just stayed away. I mean, it would have it would have been even better, honestly, for everybody if they had just let Formosus go to Bulgaria, to the Bulgars. That's true, but also we wouldn't have such joyous fun. It's true. It's true. But I'm doing some mental gymnastics here. And this is why. Because he sets the precedent of bishops moving seas, right? And if we give him credit for that, and the fact that had that been used for Formosus, that would have been better for everybody. There's an extra point in there. So I'm going to give him a two. But that's all I could give him. So he will get a six in this category. Through some mental gymnastics. Fructus prohibitum. So this really comes down to, again, if we want to condemn him for restoring Formosus, which you clearly do not, or if we think that there was any potential that he was involved in the murder of Pope John. Even if he wasn't involved in it, I think maybe getting elected 30 seconds after a man drops dead makes you a little shifty. Sure, especially because it was unanimous. So it does feel very 
Like they stab a man and they go, ah, Marinus is here. Yeah. So there's that. Um, maybe, yeah, I think that's probably worth a point each. Yeah, yeah, a point. Okay. You've talked me into a You know, two. even if he didn't do it, it would be like, you know, I don't know, like someone over there stabbing someone and they're like, ah, hey, friend, you're Pope now. <laughs> Just like, why are you there? You, you definitely can't get away from that insinuation. Even if you had nothing to do with it, it will be insinuated of you forever. So there, there's some truth there. Why is he there? <laughs> he was the legate. He was important. He was, he was everywhere. And then suddenly there's a murder and he's Pope and he's probably going, what? And we're going two points. It'd be like if Brutus wasn't in on it. Didn't also have a knife. Just watched all the other senators stab Julius Caesar and was like, what's happening? Wow. I I would love to see that telling of it. Because if you watch HBO's Rome, they clearly do. There is a whole thing where they are plotting the murder long before they get Brutus on board with it. So what if they just carried that through? Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, from all of that, he gets a two. Seculari impactum. Nothing really happens with Charles the Fat. The Byzantine emperor likes to suggest that he was uncanonically elected because of the whole bishop thing. And he makes a strong relationship with Alfred the Great by exempting taxes and the true cross, baby. So true cross, baby. Is that worth any point? No, I hate I hate it. Look, I want to, I'm going to give him, if you're going to give him a zero, then I'm going to give him at least one point for a strong relationship with Alfred the Great. Okay, Alfred the Great is great as long as we don't have to talk about that true cross again. (laughs) All right, so he'll get a one in Secular It's it's like true TM cross. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. It's been copyrighted exactly that way. Fossium Sanctus. Are you ready to see this Pope man? This this young baby boy? <laughs> this boy, yes. Yeah, here's your uh, young baby boy. Look at this elderly baby. <laughs> <laughs> this is the oldest looking man we have had in a while. This is a glorious return of the bunny poof. I'm so glad we figured out why they have them, because it's just, it's just the meeting of the tonsure and the widow peak. You would think you would just shave shave that off, though. You'd think you would shave that, too. But look, his is glorious. Is, I know, but is it against... It's a weird bangs thing is what is happening here. He's got <laughs> bangs. He's got fringe bangs. He does. Not all the way around, though. Nope, just right there. This is your baby. How do you feel about... This is my elderly baby. How do you feel about his face? It's a fine Roman face. It is very Roman, isn't it? Yeah. He's got that Roman nose, for sure. And the, the high cheekbones and all of that. He's got a Roman... I. This is the most Roman man I've seen in a while. So how does that score for you? Because I can tell you that I probably would have been very neutral about it. But considering you have continued to refer to him as so young forever, I love it so much more. <laughs> and it's going to score really well. Um, I'm going to give him like a seven. My okay. elderly baby deserves a seven. Yeah, I'm going to give him an eight for sure. And that will give him a 15. And when divided out, that gives him a 3.75. 
I have some some more incredibly youthful images for you to look at. So he's whoa. That looks like Santa. He, I'm telling you, he is the oldest looking man we've had in a while. This one less so, but this one definitely reminds me of Pope Martin the Fourth. So I feel like, again, maybe we have some naming confusion and they've just drawn the wrong one. But they did give him bangs. In all of these, he has the most glorious of bang hair or bunny poof or floof. It's this man, if he had not had a tonsure, would have had quite the head of hair, I'm sure. Tempus Pontificus. December 16th, 882 to May 15th, 884, a year and a half and a score of 0.375. Not very long. No. That's why he's only 11. This 11-year-old child with a glorious tonsure and bunny poof. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. No, he, he is not a saint, which makes sense. It's not surprising. Which brings us to his total score, which is a resounding 13.125. He's currently in um, 83rd place. <laughs> Not terrible, but it's, it's certainly in the bottom third. Not great. But that does not necessarily mean we have an answer to our final question. Anything is possible. So I will ask you if you think he's popey enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? No. Nah. Look, if we didn't give one to Hadrian II, there is no way. But that is not the end of our episode because we have a Papa Watch. So we haven't done a Pope Watch in a while just because. You know, with the way that our recording schedule was higgledy-piggledy all over the place. It was so higgledy and so piggledy. It was both the higgles and the piggles. So, <laughs> sounded really stupid as it came out, but I'm sticking with it. So, I'm just going to hit on a couple of the big stories that have gone viral or are important for the moment. So, first, on January 5th, during a general audience... Pope Francis suggested that people who choose to have pets over having children are acting selfishly. This comment was made in a discussion about parenthood where he said, quote, Today we see a form of selfishness. We see that people do not want to have a child. Sometimes they have one and that's it, but they have dogs and cats that take the place of children. This may make people laugh, but it's a reality. And the practice is a denial of fatherhood and motherhood and diminishes us and takes away our humanity. Cool, cool, cool. You need to stop capitalism first so that people can right. afford children. So to which we and the whole world resoundingly want to let Pope Francis know that this is a, a bad take. Uh, and not only is it a bad take, it's a pretty rich take for a celibate man enforcing mandated celibacy who speaks passionately about the preservation of Earth and the environment and about unconditional love, for that matter. So I'm sure he loves pets. He, he He's Francis. Look, he needs a pet. What if you get him a dog? 
That is what I wrote in my notes. I just wrote, he should probably get a dog because he'd learn about how wrong he was pretty quickly. So that's exactly it. Now, in a much more positive and back on the right track news, on January 10th, Pope Francis declared that getting vaccinated against COVID is a moral obligation and an act of love. And then on January 29th, he actively denounced vaccine misinformation, calling access to accurate information on vaccines a human right. You know what? He should excommunicate Joe Rogan. He absolutely should. I would be here for that. But moving on to more serious things and on to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, a new report issued on January 20th reveals that Benedict knew about priests who abused children when he was the Archbishop of Munich from 1977 to 82, but failed to take action and the abusers remain active within the church. This has drawn well-deserved criticism and condemnation of Benedict as complicit and part of perpetuating the most destructive cover-up plaguing the church. Now, according to Benedict's personal secretary, Archbishop Jorg Ganswein, which is the one who told us it's inappropriate to rate popes. Oh, yeah, that's right. That guy. Thinking one doesn't want us to rate Benny. He does not. But according to him... Pope Benedict expressed, quote, pain and shame for all the abuses against minors committed by priests and, quote, manifests his personal closeness and his prayers for all the victims, some who he met with during his apostolic trip. Pope Emeritus Benedict has repeatedly denied knowingly covering up abuse, but this report may absolutely shatter that claim. And just for the record, though this does not appear anywhere in the sources, this is absolutely why I believe and have always believed that he retired in the first place. And Pope Francis has also responded to the report and has promised justice for the victims of sexual abuse and supports a continued investigation into this report and all allegations of abuse. And finally, for those of you wondering, yes, I will be covering the situation in Canada regarding the Catholic Church and the many discoveries of unmarked graves of First Nations children at residential schools that happened this summer and beyond. But yes, I am absolutely putting it off right now. And this is for two reasons. And I just want to put this out there because I know that there are people who are very curious and I want to make sure that one, this is an incredibly complex situation and a difficult history. And I want to present it properly with the right sources and the right voices. And two, because Pope Francis is still consulting with Indigenous leaders, another delegation is coming in March, and he has announced that he's coming to Canada. So there's going to be a lot more development on this story here on the ground, in person, where I live. And I'm hoping to like literally cover it in person. So it's going to happen. Just give me some time. While this is an important note, it is not a nice note to end on. So we still have very important thank yous to me, and we're going to wrap up the episodes with that. So first off, thank you to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for always being our main supports and inspiration. And we have patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. We would like to say thank you to Carlos. You know what? He was trying Carlos. to keep it a secret was and he? then couldn't hold it in. And 
I knew about it beforehand. Well, I, yeah, I knew. I, I guess he was just trying to keep it a secret from you. Because <laughs> I would have had to put the, the notes in. So thank you, Carlos. <laughs> and also thank you to Mary Garcia, Azra Begovic, and Gabrielle Vara. And also, we would like to say thank you to the Maniculum podcast for having us on to play a Green Knight Arthurian literature-themed TTRPG, which was hilarious and good fun, and you should definitely go over to their feed and listen to it. Is it up? No, it'll be up in March, but it'll be up when this this episode goes out. (laughs) When this finally goes out? Oh my gosh, that was a good time. Yeah, it really was. That is the end of the episode. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.